Uh, those of you that live in the arena or live in Waco uh, know that there's been some uh, recent event that's happened. Um, there's a boy named Dalton Wolf who's a senior class president at Lorena High School. Uh, fifth in his class, accepted the Air Force Academy, um, played football and baseball, universally loved. And less than two and a half weeks ago on Wednesday, March 29th, he took his own life. Um, on his Instagram bio, Dalton had a theme verse, a verse that um, touched him most deeply, a, a verse that inspired him, perhaps, uh, long, create a longing, perhaps, for something he longed for. It's Romans 15, 13. Romans 15, 13 is a passage about hope. Hope. So please stand for the hearing of God's word. Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, we thank you that you move with and by and through and your words, and so we ask you to be on the move this morning, and you would surprise all of us in how you are at work and how you are on the move by the power of your words, and we pray this in your name, amen. Okay, Paul's plan in this little passage, this one verse, is very straightforward. First, he wants to get us to admit our emptiness. Then he wants to get us to accept his invitation to hope. So you got it? It's pretty straightforward. Very, very simple. Admit our emptiness. Um, accept the invitation to hope. So let's get started. All right, Horace is a first century Roman poet. This is what he wrote in the first century. So this is someone that goes back to the times just after Jesus. He writes, no one, <laughs> no one lives contented. Uh, Wallace Stevens, a modern American poet who won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry, wrote, But in contentment, but in contentment, I still feel the need for some imperishable bliss. In other words, even when I feel content, I still feel empty. An anonymous writer scribbled out, Cigarettes make you calm, alcohol makes you forget, drugs make you happy, Starving makes you proud. Sex makes you feel loved. Self-harm makes you feel numb. Sleep makes you stop feeling. In Romans 15, 13, Paul is saying, do not underestimate your emptiness. Now, it's interesting that Paul does not underestimate emptiness in this passage. In fact, he assumes it. Do you see that? Let's look at the text. Look at the phrase, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. This is a prayer. This is a prayer. And it's a prayer that comes at the end of Romans. It's the ultimate prayer because it's this prayer that's bringing together the whole book. It's this prayer that's taking eight chapters of good news, 
and then eight chapters on applying good news and brings them together in one powerful prayer that sums up the whole book. In fact, one of the most uh, celebrated modern-day theologians, a guy named Karl Barth, says the fulfillment of this prayer or God answering this prayer, you know what it means? He says it's the success of the book of Romans. All of Romans, the whole book and all of its content and its majesty and its mercy is actually accelerated and accomplished in the reality of this prayer. But don't miss this. To be filled with all joy and peace, Paul's prayer, is not an empty life. But it assumes one. We have a need to be filled with all joy and peace. That word all is a tremendous word before joy and before peace. And all means the highest properties, the highest levels, the highest concentration, the highest potency of joy and peace. Paul is praying that you and I get filled with because we need to, because we don't have it. We need to be filled because we're not filled. We're empty. Do you see the present tense prayer? May God fill you. That's present tense. That means there is always a continual need in your life and my life to be filled because we're empty. Emptiness is a present reality. Emptiness is in the present, according to Paul. Emptiness is the human condition. Paul is saying, listen, emptiness haunts your life. Do not underestimate that. Now notice, he's talking to Christians. He's talking to everybody. It's the whole prayer of the whole book. Do not underestimate your emptiness. How do we do that? I mean, think about that for a second. Just think it out with me. Okay, how do I underestimate my emptiness, though? How does that happen? Well, when you're at the bottom, when we're at the bottom, we feel our emptiness, don't we? I mean, the Bible has tons. It's loaded with examples. We can just go to the psalmist. Just pick one psalmist, and this is so breathtaking. The images are incredible. I am poured out like water, the psalmist says. I am emptying. My existence is spilling out of me before my very eyes. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. Anybody had a separated shoulder? A broken bone. All of my bones snap, snap, snap out of joint. My heart is like wax within me. It's just melting. All my strength is dried up. Then you got the Apostle Paul. I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers. I mean, this is amazing. This is the Apostle Paul, and he's telling the church, he's saying, listen, folks, I could keep this to myself, but I'm not going to do it. Me being, you being ignorant will not help you. You knowing what I'm about to say will help you. I want you to know that I don't want you to be ignorant of this. I don't want you to be ignorant of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. The, the superlatives are phenomenal. It's a burden on top of a burden. It's a surpassing burden. It's a burden that's unbearable. It's a burden you can't bear. That's the image. 
And he's saying it was so beyond our strength, we couldn't carry it, that we despaired of life. The great apostle Paul despaired of life. When we're at the bottom, we feel our emptiness. When we're at the top, we also feel our emptiness. How? Because when you're at the top, you know you made it. When you're at the top, you got everything you wanted. You got the relationship, you got the marriage, you got the kids, you got the family. You got the income, you got the car, you got the home, you got the fifth home, you got the dog. You got the women, you got the empires, you got the fame, you got the attention. You got the success, you got the accomplishments, you got the achievements, you got the recognition, you got it all. And you're still empty. That's a tremendous moment. It's a tremendous moment of hunting and striving and searching and wanting and longing for something your whole life and getting it, and it rattles around. It doesn't fill us. This is a famous quote, a gal named Cynthia Heimel in Tongue and Cheek. She writes, Cheek is C-H-I-C, chic. Uh, a column for the Village Voice, she wrote about some celebrities she knows that were her friends um, before they got famous, uh, how they were um, normal people before they got their fame, and then how when they finally got Everything they've always wanted, they changed. This is what she writes. I pity celebrities. No, I really do. And then she mentions them by name, and I was going to mention them, but I thought, you know, I really like one of them, so I'm not going to. All right? <laughs> they were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. You see, they wanted fame. They worked. They pushed. And the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because the giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them some personal fulfillment and happiness had happened, and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling, howling howling and insufferable. Here's the point. Most of us don't live at the bottom, and most of us don't live at the top. Most of us live in the middle. And you know what that means? It means it's hard for us to feel our emptiness. So how do most of us, most people in the United States, who live somewhere in the middle. How do you feel your emptiness? How do you know when you're empty when you live in the middle? Here's answer number one. When we blame others for our emptiness. 
This is how you know that you live in the middle. This is how you know that um, you're in the middle somewhere and it's very difficult for you to, to tap into and to face and admit and to acknowledge your emptiness because it comes like this. It's my husband. Answer, get another husband. Or it's my job, or it's my situation and circumstances, or it's the coach, or it's my child, or it's the professor, or it's my income, or it's my friends, or it's where we live, or it's the dog. When we live in the middle, we can kind of start tapping into the reality of our emptiness when we realize we're blaming our circumstances and blaming others and blaming people. But what's really happening is the emptiness within, within us is welling up and showing itself, and we just can't figure out that it's within. We look outside to blame it. I was just talking with Joe Oliver, and it was really fascinating. Netflix has a, a deal called 13 Reasons that are out right now about teenage suicide. And it's 13 reasons why this, this student ends up taking her life. And all the reasons are outside of her. What other people have done. When the ultimate reason for emptiness is already inside of us. It's already there. And everything, whether it's circumstance or people, what they end up doing is they end up releasing the kraken. And the kraken comes out but we still think it's the circumstance and we still think it's the person, so we blame them. We underestimate our emptiness. The other thing we do is we blame ourselves for our emptiness. We become our worst critic. You know that inner critic? Everyone has an internal dialogue that goes on with them. And sometimes it's you can't hear it and sometimes that's all you hear. Well, at this point, when the emptiness starts start showing itself, the inner critic goes to work. And what the inner critic does is we have this constant self-criticism going on, this constant self-evaluation that's going on, this constant self-analysis that's going on in terms of how we handle things, how people think of us, how we think of us, how we interacted with this performance, how we interacted with that conversation, how we're doing on our job, how we're doing as a mom, how we're doing as a dad, how we're doing as a parent. How are we doing? How am I doing and how am I doing it? And the answer is always, you're never enough, you never do enough, you're just not enough. It's like someone gives you a shovel and you take the shovel and you start digging into yourself and you dig out this pit of insecurity and this pit of inferiority. That's when you know you live in the middle. That's when you know it's hard to hit the real reality of your emptiness. So why in the world, y'all, why in the world does Paul want us to admit our emptiness? I mean, I, when I got to this passage, and I'm looking at this passage, and I'm thinking, oh, my word, he's going after our emptiness. He's going after the ultimate human condition in this passage, in this prayer, summarizing the whole book. And I started thinking, and it's what no professional counselor, no amateur counselor today is going to tell you to do. Admit your emptiness. The modern path to health and to happiness and to healing is not this way that Paul's going. So it's good for us to know that. I mean, we need to know that. The 
path that Paul is blazing in this passage is going against the culture. It's going against professional counselors. It's going against the armchair quarterback counselors, you and me on the couch talking to folks. How many of you saw uh, Silver Linings Playbook, the movie? If you haven't seen it, you need to see it. It's a hard movie to watch, but you need to see it. You know what that movie spends two hours trying to do? It's trying to wake us up to our addiction to silver linings. Some of the things we do are just plain stupid, like, hey, I, I know you lost your child, but look on the bright side. You've got two more. I've heard that before. And then there's the, just the harmful things like five steps to healing, health, and happiness, how to um, master your pain and maximize your potential. You just need another wife. I hear people say that, and I hear professional counselors say that when marriage problems happen. Dude, you just need another wife. Divorce this one. Move on. Move on. This substance will make you feel better. You're better than this. You don't want to be like them. I mean, what will people think of you? And then one of my all-time favorites is you're not living the victorious Christian life, but I'm here to tell you how. No, you better get out of my face. Why in the world does the Apostle Paul want us to admit our emptiness? Because it's the only way to hope. It's the only way. Look at the phrase, God of hope. <laughs> so breathtaking. The God of hope is an unusual description for God. This is the only place in the New Testament that it's used. In fact, if you go to the Septuagint, it's not even used as Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, the whole Bible. Nowhere is this phrase ever used of God. What does it mean? It's so striking. It's so rare. It's so unusual. And Paul pulls it out at the end of Romans. The God of hope. You know what it means? God is the author of hope. Hope exists because of God. Hope is real because of God. Hope fills hearts because of God. The point is not so much that God gives you hope. The point is God is hope. He is your hope. It's not just him coming along and saying, hey, man, here's a little hope to keep you going. It's the other way. Hey, man, I'm your hope. Do not underestimate your emptiness means that our emptiness is infinite. That means our emptiness has an eternal shape to it, an eternal size to it, an eternal depth to it. That only an eternal, infinite person can step in and fill it. Paul is inviting us to hope in God, real hope, hope 
in God. How do we do that? How do we hope in God? How does God become our hope? I'm going to read the passage literally, and what I'm going to do when I say literally, I'm going to like elongate the verb tenses, and I'm going to fill in the interpretation of what all means, and I'm going to stretch it out so that you get a a literal, if it's a little wooden, it's a little wooden, but a literal interpretation, and I want you to, to listen again, and I want you to listen. How does God become my hope? May the God of hope continually fill you with the highest potency of joy and peace as you believe. In order that, purpose, goal, you overflow or you abound with hope. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. First, did you catch the goal of the prayer? The whole prayer is moving to one thing. The whole prayer is moving to you and me abounding in hope. You know what that means? This, is, this means God's confronting emptiness. And when God confronts emptiness, He not only fills it up, He overflows its banks. That's the picture. The goal is God stepping in, filling your emptiness so that you abound, you overflow with hope. And how does God fill our emptiness with hope experientially? How does this happen? How does it become true to you in real life, in real time? How does it happen in the midst of heartache? How does it happen in the midst of a severe situation? How does it happen in the midst of rejection? How does it happen in the midst of your loss of your job? How does it happen when you want to end it all? How does it happen as you believe in believing? We said that um, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached through Romans. I should have checked. I can't remember. Some of you remember. Was it five years, 15 years? Anybody remember what I said a couple of weeks ago? See if you were really listening. Well, anyhow, on Friday nights, Friday nights, who goes out to hear someone preach on Friday nights? His chapel was packed with thousands of people to hear Romans for five to 15, whatever years, every Friday night. Do you know what his primary source was? His, his go-to commentary, his go-to scholar on Romans, a guy named Robert Haldane, an ancient Scottish preacher of gospel renewal in the 1800s. And this is what he says in his classic commentary on this passage on what it means as you believe in believing. Here's what he says. Faith when spoken, faith when spoken of without a peculiar reference. In other words, it just says something like faith in or believing or have faith. When Paul, whenever Paul uses that phrase, this is what he says it means. When faith is spoken of without peculiar reference, faith means Christ. Not faith in a particular promise. Do you realize what he's saying? And I absolutely agree with him. Whenever you come across Paul and his writings, and anytime he says believing, and anytime he says faith, it's shorthand. You might as well write in pen, in Christ. In good news, not good advice. In a Jesus salvation, not a work salvation. In a righteousness received, not a righteousness achieved. 
in the wonder of a Jesus justification and not a self-justification. Faith and belief in believing. This is what Paul is saying. As you and I, whether you're a Christian or you just become a Christian or whether you're a, a saint for 80, 90 years, 100 years, he's saying, as you believe, as you continue to learn to build your messy life around Jesus and his salvation, something he's done, not what you do, something he's accomplished, not something we achieve. When we do that in this area and that area and we grow in that, you know what he says? The God of hope fills you. He steps into your emptiness and your banks overflow with hope. Solid joy, solid peace. Believing the gospel changes everything. Believing the gospel turns emptiness into hope. In verse 12, Paul quotes Isaiah. I wish, I wish I would have had a conversation with Dalton Wolf about that. In verse 12, Paul quotes Isaiah, just before verse 13. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. N.T. Wright, beautiful, what he says about the connection between 12 and 13, he's saying this, that there's these echoes. In other words, Paul reads Isaiah and reads this verse in Isaiah, and Paul goes, oh yeah, it had that historical meaning there, and its complete meaning is Jesus. That's how Paul read the Bible. So it has this skeletal template meaning that fulfills the historical original intent, but it's not the final meaning because there's a surplus of meaning in Isaiah. And the surplus of meaning in Isaiah is Jesus and his salvation. And so that's the way he read the Bible. So this is what's happening. What N.T. Wright says is in, in Romans 1.4 and Isaiah, this Isaiah passage, that they're mirroring each other. Paul looked at Isaiah and he writes Romans 1.4. And this is what he says. He says, like in Romans 1.4, the son of David in Romans 1.4 is what in Isaiah? Look at 12, the root of Jesse, okay? Then you have in Romans 1.4, this, this son of God being declared with power to be the son of God. In other words, what's happening is before the whole cosmos, before the whole universe, it's not Caesar that rules the world, it's Jesus that rules the world. And he gets declared by the power of God, this is the king. What does it say in Isaiah? Rule the Gentiles. In 1.4 it says, by his resurrection from the dead is how he becomes king, declared to be the son of God. In Isaiah it says, he who arises to rule. I just love that. In other words, Isaiah is writing about a champion that will come to rise to rule the world. And Paul says, that's the resurrection of Jesus. Here's the image. The resurrection of Jesus is hope filling the emptiness. 
The resurrection of Jesus is hope ruling emptiness. Sin and death means we belong to emptiness. The sin in you, the sin in me, the sin in the world, the brokenness in the world, the death in the world, the death in us, the death that's there, the death that will be, means we belong to the realm of emptiness and God has every right by justice to leave us there. But he doesn't. Jesus enters emptiness and empties himself to fill us up. In the emptying of Jesus is the filling of hope and the filling of all emptiness so that it abounds and it overflows. The resurrection of Jesus means hope fills the emptiness. The resurrection of Jesus means hope now says to emptiness, I rule you. I'm the champion. I'm the conqueror. I'm the king. May the God of hope fill you with all joy Fill you with all peace as you believe the good news so that you abound, you overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.